0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Romans 14, verse 1 through 14, which I entitled, Using Your Freedom to Love. If you've been with us this, throughout this series here in Romans, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this concept of biblical love and how that's sort of the driving narrative throughout the Bible. And Paul has been sort of unfolding this concept of love being sort of the main ethic when it comes to Christianity. Now Paul addresses an issue that arises in the Roman church that was causing sort of a dispute. It was creating some tension between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians there in Rome. In Romans 14, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, "...accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables." Okay. I think this bears a little bit of explanation, okay? Paul isn't... He's not getting down on vegetarians here. Um. The background, and it's a little bit difficult to pin down, some commentators of the Bible argue that what Paul was talking about here was a situation where the Jewish Christians in Rome were a little bit concerned about the meat that they were eating that they purchased from the markets. And one of the things that we know from Jewish oral tradition is that there's a certain way that you have to slaughter animals, that it needs to be done in a humane way. Therefore, Jewish people who are pretty observant will only eat animals that are certified as kosher, meaning not only that the the meat itself fits within the Old Testament law, but also that it was slaughtered in a humane way. So some Christian thinkers believe that this is the main background behind what was going on here, that these Jewish Christians were afraid of maybe eating meat that was slaughtered in some sort of inhumane way. I think a better explanation is that there was concern that these Jewish Christians were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, false gods. In the Greco-Roman world, there was a huge pantheon of gods And what happened was, when practitioners would come into the temple of one of the gods, they would offer an animal, and of course, they would only use certain parts of the animal for the sacrifice, and then the rest would be sold in the market. So there was a little bit of concern among the Jewish Christians that the the meat that they were purchasing and eating from the markets were actually involved in worship of false gods. So some of them decided that they were going to abstain from meat altogether and just eat vegetables to be safe. So the dispute between these two are, first of all, that there are those who think that it's wrong, or who don't think it's wrong, and Paul regards them as or calls them the strong in faith in Romans 15 verse 1. These are probably the non-Jewish or the Gentile Christians who feel like We shouldn't worry about whether or not we're eating meat that's sacrificed to idols because ultimately we know that there's only one God. So it's silly for you to be paranoid about this. Others, probably Jewish Christians in this this church, thought that it was wrong. And Paul calls those individuals those who are weak in faith. In other words... They have such a strong conscience or a sensitive conscience that they feel like they need to restrict themselves unnecessarily even though God gives them freedom to be able to eat meat that's, that's, you know, even sacrificed to idols. So why did Paul consider them weak in faith? The answer is that God says there are no other gods except for him. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 through 6. Paul says, So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, this was another situation in Corinth, but it was very similar to the one here in Rome, as we'll see. He says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live." So that's his reasoning. He says, look, you don't have to worry about whether this meat is sacrificed to idols because these people are not sacrificing these animals to anyone because there's only one God. So to worry about eating meat that's sacrificed to idols, that is somebody who is weak in their faith. Now, going back to our passage, it's interesting that Paul says that we should accept those who are weak in faith. That is, those who have an overly sensitive conscience. Now, we think about this idea of acceptance in our culture, and that's a really important thing today, to be accepting of people. And theologically, the Bible agrees. This concept of acceptance is very similar to the biblical concept of justification. That God accepts people because of his love for them. But this word that he uses, proslambano, is actually a little bit stronger than tolerance or just simply accepting people. You know, in our culture today, when we talk about acceptance or tolerance, really what we're saying is, I acknowledge that you exist or you have a place in our society, right? But this word, in Greek, actually is a little bit stronger than that. It means to extend a welcome, to receive into one's home or circle of acquaintances. So it's, it really depicts kind of the warmth and love that you would experience in a family where people really embrace you and accept you into their community. So we're not just simply tolerating people. God calls on us to actively love people even though they may have different views than us. Now, we should be very careful because though God's love for people is unconditional, His acceptance of people is conditional. And let me unpack that. Because on the one hand, God loves all people. His love is universal. But at the same time, for Him to accept people, that requires humility and also acknowledging that Jesus Christ indeed is our Savior. So we need to think about that as we are looking at this discussion about accepting those who are weak in faith. As Paul says in Romans 15, verse 7, that we should accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. In other words, our acceptance of people is God's acceptance of the people He loves in His community. Okay, verse 3. Paul says the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Now, Paul's main concern here is not making either side change their actions, but avoiding division and judgment of one another. So that's interesting. Because you have two people, two groups, who are judging one another. And he's not saying, okay, one group needs to change its behavior, but that really what's important is that we accept one another and that we don't create unnecessary division over something that doesn't, that's not really that important. He says in verse 4 and 5, "...who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So he says that in addition to these Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians judging one another over this meat that's sacrificed to idols, that there was also dispute about holy days, You know, if you ever study the Old Testament, there are tons of holy days that you're supposed to observe. And apparently the Jewish Christians were really obsessed with observance of these special days. And then probably the non-Jewish believers were like, we don't have to worry about doing that. And you know, these, these Jewish Christians are so concerned about the Old Testament law, but we've been freed of that. So both parties were judging one another for a difference of opinion. Now, Paul makes it very clear that though the Jewish believers felt like it was important for them to adhere to this Old Testament law when it came to these special days, that they were misguided. He says in Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are just a shadow of things that were to come. But the reality, however, is found in Christ. So, Paul points out that when you look at all of these Old Testament sacred days and festivals that God instituted, practically all of them were pointing to what Jesus would do. If you've ever studied the Passover feast and look at, how that relates to Jesus and His death on the cross, there are remarkable similarities between those. If you think about the Day of Atonement, really the most sacred day in the Jewish calendar, that that has remarkable similarities to what Jesus did on the cross. And so these Old Testament rituals that God had set up in special days, these were all pointing to what Jesus would ultimately do. So that's why Jesus said and Paul really affirms that we don't have to worry about adhering to these special days anymore because the reality is Christ. He says in verse 6, He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So he's questioning why these guys are judging one another over things that are relatively unimportant. It may seem important to them, but they're not essential things, as we'll see. Now, it's important for us to to understand that Paul isn't saying that we should never judge. That's a big thing in our culture today, that you should never judge people no matter what they believe or no matter what they do. And I think what God is saying here is that we shouldn't engage in unrighteous judgment, but that there are cases where we should engage in judgment. For example, when we hear teaching, we have to be able to discern whether or not what we're hearing is true, that it adheres with what we read in the Bible, or whether it's false teaching. God tells us that we need to be able to discern between those two things. God also says that we need to be able to call out hypocrisy in the church. You know, you think about people in our culture today, and when they think of a Christian, they think automatically of hypocrisy, right? So being able to call that out and and engage in righteous judgment is really important. So he's not saying that we should... We shouldn't judge ever. But in this case, when we talk about things of lesser importance, we shouldn't engage in unrighteous judgment. Verse 13 and 14, he says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. Now you read something like this and you think, wow, is Paul falling into some sort of moral relativism? You know, if somebody regards something as unclean, I guess it's unclean to them. But that's not what he's saying. If you look right there in verse 14, he says, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. So Paul isn't discussing whether this meat is unclean, but whether they think it's unclean. Their perception. Of this meet. Okay, now things are getting a little bit complicated, and I know you're, you're starting to feel like, okay, this is getting a little bit confusing, but, but I think if you stick with this, it's going to all make sense when we get to the end here. I drew up a little diagram to kind of help us out to understand some of these difficult concepts, okay? So this is a circle. Now, outside of this circle, let's say you have things that you regard as moral absolutes. These are things that God says are wrong, right? So committing adultery, where you sleep with somebody else's spouse, or let's say arm robbery, attempted murder, cheating on your taxes. Those things are wrong. But then there are also things that... May seem they 're not as intuitive but are also wrong that the Bible talks about, such as having contempt for the poor or hating your your brother or sister in Christ, or putting something other than than God at the center of your life, like money and possessions. God says that that 's wrong; those are moral absolutes, so anything that falls outside of this solid line circle, that that, that would be things that are morally wrong according to the Bible. Now, within this circle, you have what are called moral gray areas. And moral gray areas would be things like drinking alcohol, right? Now, the Bible says that we can drink alcohol, but that we shouldn't engage in getting drunk. Now, some people might feel like I don't feel in my conscience that I should drink alcohol. And others might feel like, well, I I do feel like I can do that. Or let's say some people who like to express themselves sometimes use colorful words that that sometimes might be expletives, right? (laughs) And they don't feel like that's really that bad, depending on the context. But depending on your background, maybe you grew up in a church and you feel like, you know, I don't really like that, and that's just something I don't feel like I should engage in. So there's moral gray area that Christians need to sort of decide, okay, where do I fall when it comes to these areas? Now, within this, you have what you might call individual restrictions, and these individual restrictions sort of depend on the person. So, for example, let's say you came out of a lifestyle of substance abuse, right? Maybe you you drank too much. So, you really feel uncomfortable putting yourself in a situation, maybe where you're going to a bar, or you don't even feel comfortable having a drink because you know if you have a drink, that you can't really control yourself and that you're concerned that you're going to break your sobriety. So there are some people who feel like, I don't feel comfortable drinking. And so that's within my individual restrictions that I'm putting upon myself. Others might feel like, okay, I I used to be addicted to narcotics. And, you know, being around a certain group of friends who I know sell drugs... And use all the time. If I spend any time with them, they're going to pressure me to to start using again. So I feel like it's just not even wise for me to spend time with my old friends because it puts me in danger of using again. And so they're applying their individual restrictions to themselves in order to avoid falling into something that's going to hurt them. For some people though, it may not necessarily be an area of struggle, but Maybe it's because you grew up in a certain church background or tradition. And because of that, you're used to a way of life, and so you don't feel comfortable doing things that might even be within this moral gray area. For example, I grew up going to a church, and my parents never really drank at all. So I sort of put the pieces together that you're not supposed to really drink because you're a Christian. So what I would do when I was younger as a teenager, I would sneak out and just drink with my friends, right? I didn't want my parents to know about it. So I remember years later coming around to a Bible study like this and just being surprised when after a Bible study, Christians were popping open a beer and drinking. And I didn't say anything about it, but I remember going to um, a ministry house and I remember opening up the refrigerator, and I saw a six-pack of beer in there, and one of the guys was standing there in the kitchen, I said, I was like, whose six-pack is this? And he's like, oh, it's mine. I was like, oh, man, so you you drink? Is that okay for Christians? And he's like, yeah, actually, let me show you some passages that suggest that Jesus drank beer, and it's not bad to do that so long as you're not getting drunk. And so he he walked me through all of these different passages that, you know, it's okay, it's okay to have a beer occasionally, but... It's important for you to exercise self-control in this area. He said, but you know, when it comes to smoking cigarettes, that is wrong. And I was, you know, smoking a cigarette as we were hanging out. (laughs) And so in that moment, I realized, okay, the reason I was abstaining from drinking was because of this religious tradition that I grew up with. And I realized that that wasn't actually in the Bible, So afterward, I started drinking, and I continued to smoke. So, um, you know, I think the point is this. When you think about these individual restrictions, it's important to understand that individual freedoms differ from one person to another. Right? That's going to depend on your upbringing, your religious background, You know, imagine if you came from a Muslim background and you grew up never eating pork. You you may decide that you're going to abstain from that even as a Christian, in part because you you don't feel comfortable doing that, but also because you have Muslim friends that you don't want to offend. And so you're exercising your individual restriction, but that doesn't mean that everybody else needs to abstain from pork. But that's just something that you personally feel uh, uncomfortable with. Now, let's look at a parallel passage here in 1 Corinthians 8 that I think sheds some light on this, but also gives us a more well-rounded picture of how to think about this area of prioritized ethics or principalized ethics. Um, In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, Paul says to the Corinthian believers, so a different crowd, he says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that There is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that they think they eat such food that they think it has been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. So in this context here, in, in Corinth, there was a very similar situation where there was a dispute over this meat sacrifice to idols, but there was actually sort of the opposite problem. That there were some older, more mature Christians who were exercising their freedom, their liberty to eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols because they understood theologically that there's only one God. And yet, there were younger Christians there who probably were coming out of a lifestyle of worship of these other gods. And so they looked at these older Christians and thought to themselves, oh, well, they're eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. Maybe that means it's okay for me not only to worship the Christian God, but also to sort of syncretize that with my old worship. So, inevitably, these believers were stumbling. Younger believers, younger Christians who may not have had a strong faith and thought that maybe they could worship both God and Um, some of these other gods within the Greco-Roman pantheon. He says in verse 9 through 11, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in the idol's temple, won't they be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So there are some remarkable similarities between the Roman group and the Corinthian group that Paul talks to about this issue. Both refer to eating things that are sacrificed to idols. Both refer to stumbling your brother or sister in Christ. Both are concerned about weaker brothers. But we also see some important differences as well. First of all, the weaker brother in 1 Corinthians 8 refers to someone who used to worship false gods, whereas the weak in faith in Romans 14 were converted Jewish people. So in the Corinthian situation, there were those who were weak in faith who thought, oh, well, since they are worshiping God and other gods within the pantheon by eating this meat sacrifice to idols, maybe I can do that too. In Romans, it was that the Jewish Christians were abstaining from eating meat and they were judging the non-Jewish Christians for eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. So it was just the opposite. Also, the Corinthians were too permissive, whereas the Romans were too restrictive. So the the Corinthians were like, well, I'm free to do whatever I want, so it doesn't really matter what what impact that has on my brother or sister in Christ. I'm going to do what I'm free to do in Christ. It's my right to be able to do that. Whereas the Roman Christians, especially the Jewish Christians, were too restrictive in that they were too concerned about defiling themselves even though God specifies that there's only one God. So it's interesting that when you look at these that Paul actually gives the same solution to two different problems. Now <clears throat> the principle of servant love suggests that we should use self-denial without judgment. That's his that's his solution to this situation. Apply servant love. Do what is going to be best for the other person. You know, it's important for us to enjoy our freedoms in Christ. God says that He has given us incredible freedom and that we should enjoy that to the maximal amount without putting ourselves in compromising situations. Think about 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 and 24. Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. In other words, when we do things like express our freedom in Christ carelessly around people who are maybe weaker in their faith, we might actually be putting them in a situation where they're tempted to do something that violates their conscience. And that's not loving. Or when we sit there in judgment of somebody because they are restricting themselves, that is an unloving thing. And so we should enjoy our freedoms, but we need to make sure that we're not putting unnecessary stumbling blocks in other people's way. So for example, if you have somebody who you're close to and is part of your Christian community and let's say they struggle with alcoholism, it might be worthwhile for you to consider how might my, my freedom to be able to crack open a beer or have a glass of wine impact this brother or sister coming out of this lifestyle of addiction? Am I, am I unnecessarily stumbling them? So it's, it's really about thinking, how can I use my freedom in a way to serve one another in love? Number two, what we do in gray area matters depends from one situation to another. And so really, when we talk about what do we do in these gray area situations, and the answer is, depends. 1 Corinthians 10, verse uh, 25 through 29, Paul says, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for the conscience sake, the other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? So the Corinthians were saying, what should we do when somebody serves us meat sacrifice to idols? Paul's answer, Depends. I mean, this, this drives legalistic thinkers nuts, right? No, just tell me what I need to do. And the answer is you should do what's loving. You should exer- exercise your freedom in such a way that it doesn't put other people in compromising situations. But if you find yourself in a situation that might stumble somebody, then in love, you should restrict yourself. That's the reason why God gave you these freedoms not to use for your selfish pleasures or to exert your rights. Also, we should accept differences without judgment. You now, we should have diversity in our community where we're not trying to get people to conform and, and go beyond what they feel comfortable doing, pushing them to violate their conscience. Instead, we should respect them and we shouldn't judge them. Also, I think it's important for us to avoid arbitrary absolutes, okay? So going back to our little diagram here. So you have those individual restrictions that are indicated by the the circle within the the bigger circle that has these these, um, you know, broken lines here. those individual restrictions sometimes turn into arbitrary absolutes you know when you go to a church a lot of times the leaders or the pastor make observations they're like i see that when people go out to a bar that christians sometimes get drunk and that alcoholism is damaging to families And so maybe what we should do is we should just tell people they shouldn't drink because that's going to safeguard them from alcoholism and drunkenness. And so these arbitrary absolutes takes what's an individual restriction and then makes it into a moral absolute. In other cases, pastors might look around and they say, you know, when you go to a nightclub, or you see people dancing. Sometimes people dance and it's sexually provocative, gyrating and popping their hips. <laughs> so it's really difficult to try to figure out, okay, what, where's the line? Because, you know, it's sort of subjective. What, what is dancing that is sexualized? And so what we should really do is we should just basically say, no dancing. And actually, there are churches that say that it's wrong to dance. There are Christian colleges that you go to where you're not allowed to dance. And so, again, the individual freedoms of, of a person are then restricted again by arbitrary absolutes. So you can see how this thinking can lead to restriction of freedom. Because the idea is we need to try to prevent people from falling into sin. But, that, but that's not our job, right? That's not what the church is here for. We're not here to prevent people from sin. We're here to teach people about the grace of God and to experience victory as God changes them from the inside out. So I think we need to consider some of the perils of arbitrary absolutes. First of all, fear of contamination leads to withdrawal. And you see this in a lot of Christian communities where there is this perception, this ethos within a church that what we need to do is we need to protect our members from the encroaching evil of the world and the influence of the worldly people in it. So what happens is within a Christian community, there are cloisters that form, that are aimed at trying to protect people from sin. And yet, that's a total misconception of the way sin works. Sin isn't something out there that infiltrates the community of God. According to Jesus, sin and evil and thoughts of lust, they brim from within. You know, we don't, we don't need to look much further than right here to find out where all of the sin and evil in the world exists think about the wars in the world. Where do they come from? It's jealousy, hatred, racism. Where does that come from? It comes from the human heart. It doesn't come from outside of that. Now, the other thing is that Christians lose touch with their non-Christian friends, and that can be a real problem, right? Especially if our main goal is to try to reach the world for Christ. You know, imagine if your friend calls you up, your non-Christian friend, and he's like, hey, Joe, um, what are you doing tonight? And you're like, um, nothing. Hey, I was thinking maybe we could go out to this bar. The the game is on tonight, and it'd be really fun if we got a couple drinks and watched the game. (laughs) Oh, well, you see, um, you know, I'm a Christian, and you're really, I'm not allowed to drink and stuff, so I'm, I'm not sure that I can do that. He's like, oh, okay, well, what about... Um, maybe what we could do is we can, we can go out and play some cards with my friends a couple days from now. We, we like to play poker. It's real fun. It's real casual. It's not a lot of money. You're like, well, you see, um, Christians really shouldn't be engaging in gambling and stuff. It's, it's kind of sinful. And um He's like, okay, all right, well, you know, next Friday is the premiere of this new movie and stuff, and, and I heard that it's going to be really, really good. You're like, well, <laughs> uh, what you don't understand is that, uh, you know, Christians really shouldn't be watching R-rated movies and stuff. It's, it's just not really appropriate. And so your friend is just like, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'll call you next week and we can try to figure out something to do. And so your friend hangs up the phone and he thinks to himself, man, I really should consider being a Christian. (laughs) I mean, how many people in our culture think of Christians and think about how if I decide to investigate spiritual things, if I decide that I want to actually become a Christian, I need to figure out whether or not I'm going to give up all of these things that I actually think are fun. And yet one of the things that's really troubling about that is that God is like, I never said any of those things. I never restricted you from these things that my followers are suggesting you need to give up. And it must be incredibly frustrating from God's standpoint for His followers to put unnecessary hurdles in front of people he cares about and is trying to draw near to him. And so it creates a lot of damage. Also, Christians become odious to the non-Christian world. They look at Christians and they think that they're stuffy, they're no fun, and that to get to become a Christian means to give up a lifestyle of excitement and fun. Also, it draws attention away from what really matters. It draws attention away from where people actually stand with Christ and it gets them to fixate on these things that are peripheral and are arbitrary absolutes. Now, there are also perils of unrestricted freedom as well. I think people will misunderstand our actions when we decide that we are just going to express our freedoms without any concern of how people might perceive that or how younger Christians might perceive that it creates a confusing picture like it did in the Corinthian church. Secondly, people might conclude that right and wrong don't really matter. I guess it's it's all just sort of relative, like what our culture says. That's what Christianity is about too. And finally, we actually lose our freedom due to excess. That in an attempt to express our freedom without any sort of constraints that that same freedom actually leads us to slavery. We've seen that happen. Where we feel this freedom to do whatever we want and that very thing that we're engaging in actually takes hold of us and becomes an addiction. Let's draw a few conclusions. I think first of all, living for Christ gives us true freedom. Now that might be a shock to some of you. Because maybe you think of Christianity and you think of restrictiveness and you think of people taking away your freedom. But the reality is that we have incredible freedom in Christ because, you know, the things that we live our lives for, they're things that ultimately control us. And what God says is that when we put Him at the center, that we can actually enjoy life to its fullest because we're not dependent on that anymore. Think about your relationship with your significant other. If you put that person at the center of your life, how they treat you, or maybe misunderstanding the way that they're acting toward you can really cause you to feel insecure. It can ruin your day. And yet if you put your security in Christ, if you put God at the center, it allows you to enjoy that relationship because you're not worried about rejection. You're not worried about gaining your sense of security from this other person. Instead, you're deriving that from Christ and what he says about you. And so actually, we gain true freedom by putting ourselves under God's leadership Ultimately, God knows what's best for you. He's the one who designed you. And when you look at your life and you think about how you have decided to go your own way, thinking that you know what's best, the question you have to ask yourself is, is that working for me? Is the outcome of my life suggestive that I know what's best for my life? You know, God says, I know what's best for you because I created you and I love you. And so these restrictions that I'm putting on you, it's not because I'm trying to control you, it's because I love you and I don't want you to damage yourself and other people. And so living for Christ gives true freedom, but if you're here tonight, the starting point for that is to turn to God and receive the forgiveness that He offers through Jesus Christ. God loves you. And He wants to be in a relationship with you. But again, as we said, He doesn't give us unconditional acceptance even though He gives us unconditional love. For in order for us to have His acceptance, we need to humble ourselves and place our trust in Jesus Christ. Secondly, don't use your freedom to satisfy your selfish desires. Don't fall into the trap that the Corinthians were falling into, where they were just exercising their freedom without any concern about how that would impact anybody else. And I think it's important for us because we live in a culture of entitlement where we feel like we are entitled to our freedoms and our rights, and it doesn't matter how that impacts anybody else. What matters is me and how I feel. And yet, the biblical view really, I think, resists that way of thinking. That it's important for us to think about how we can love and serve others with our freedom. Thirdly, rather, we should use our freedom to serve others in love. That's exactly what Jesus did. He had freedom to do whatever He wanted, being the God of the universe, and yet He restricted His own freedoms by coming in the man Jesus Christ. And He did that to serve us And finally, we need to resist any attempt to go beyond what God has revealed in His written Word. Even though it would be easier just simply to tell people, you know, instead of thinking about this carefully and weighing what you think is is right based on different biblical principles and listening to the Holy Spirit, which is a very complicated process, let me just tell you what you should do. Just don't do it, okay? Just to be safe. First of all, we're not authorized to do that and we're not here to do your thinking for you. You need, to, you need to get to a point where you understand what the Bible says, what God says are important values. You need to weigh those carefully and you need to prayerfully consider in some of these complex moral gray area decisions, what's the best decision for you? Okay. Okay. Lord, it's cool to see how our community in some way mirrors the the Roman church, that people are coming from so many different backgrounds, and yet there's a basis for love, and there's a basis for unity, and that, um, you know, this is a community where uh, people are engaged in love with one another and and resist judgment of one another. Uh, I pray that we can Remain that way. I pray that we can become a community that um, increasingly demonstrates your love and resists judgment of one another. And um, also, thank you for giving us passages like Romans 14, which really tackles a very complicated issue of uh, this idea of having, you know, principalized ethics. And uh, we pray that we can apply this to our lives as we face some of these moral gray areas where we need to choose what to do. And um, I pray that we can bring to bear what you teach us in the Bible, but also uh, gain some help from people too who, who maybe know the Bible better than we do. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.